I'm Hillary. And I'm Sandra. Coming up on the podcast, we're going to talk to the author of The Vagina Bible. You, she's everywhere right now. Her name is Dr. Jen Gunter. And yeah, we're going to talk about vaginas for the entire episode. Do you want to say it one more time, Sandra? No. Vagina. <laughs> vagina. No, vagina. Vagina. <laughs> We're going to break down all the myths. <laughs> Jen's going to tell it like it is. You're going to want to hear. The Quick and the Dirty Podcast with Hillary Welch and Sandra Plagakis. Now that we're talking about vaginas, can we talk about mine? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, not okay. It's close to it, though. It's Okay, what is going on? Okay, I have a UTI. I want everybody to know. <laughs> Why? Why would you want to share that? What's hilarious is that I, well, first of all, I just want you to know I haven't had a UTI in 25 years and I got one and I I mentioned it to people I work with and they're all looking at me like I'm a hoe. (laughs) Well, you are, but what do you mean? It's not hoe related? No, it's not hoe related at all. Um, I got the, I I got the no dick UTI. I don't even know how one gets, I'm like, what did I sit on something? Like literally like talk about misinformed, but I'm like, how do you get a UTI if, you know, you haven't been pounded mercilessly? <laughs> did you wipe the wrong way? No, like, I think that's good. Friend. I know I've been doing it for 40 something years. I know how to do it. Why now would I have to have a UTI? You know what I mean? I would have had them way sooner. You know what? I didn't learn until I was in my like late twenties that you have to pee after sex so you don't get one. Uh, I do anyway, because I just want to get the hell out of there. <laughs> I've, I've got to go pee. And then you leave. Or you just go. <laughs> and then you just like put your hair together again. You know, <laughs> you make sure you don't look like, you know, death or whatever it is. You just want it. You want your sexy afterglow. Uh, but 25 years ago, Hillary, I got my, my first UTI, one of two. And I remember I was, it was the worst thing in the world. What happened? Well, I got pounded mercilessly. (laughs) By who? By my now husband. Oh, well, that's less sexy. It was, (laughs) it wasn't just some rando I met in a bar. I know. I wanted the hot story. I was like, where are we going with this? Who did me seven times in a night. No, it wasn't that. Not at all. It was, (laughs) it was Tim. And it was like the, the first, uh, like time we had sex once we started doing it mm-hmm. we didn't we like we didn't come up for air for weeks and then eventually times have changed by the way but <laughs> oh have they ever and uh but i remember I, I i went to do i went to squat and that i will never forget the pain and it went on for about a day before i ended up going to a doctor and getting you know antibiotics but that that is something isn't it well, there's something about getting a UTI because it can be sexually transmitted, but more often than not, it's just bacteria that went the wrong way in, uh, your, in your urethra, not right? Sexy. But uh, it's so funny when something like that happens. You immediately look, immediately look at your partner like, "What did you do to me?" Because you don't know exactly that it's a UTI. You're like, "Did you have something? Did you give me something?" Oh, I have the clap. Great. <laughs> Super duper. I have gonorrhea or the clap. Like the mind just goes and it's something super minor. But as soon as something itches or feels weird or is different, you freak out. That's fun. Is that your initial thought? Oh, always. It's like I'm dying. <laughs> no, but do you immediately want to. All of my bad b- behavior from my youth has finally caught up with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was prolonged, the clap, but I got it anyway. I knew I was going to get it eventually. Listen, I've always said I've won the lottery. I'm a Montreal girl who's never had an STD. I'm a unicorn. <laughs> right here, right now. But I never thought of blaming my significant other. or Because who's having sex in my house? I don't think either one of us is right now. And if I think I would be more proud of him that he could get somebody to bang him, you know, with his sexy minivan that he drives, <laughs> like, you know. It's not really a chick mobile, is what I'm saying. <laughs> he, I, oh, wow. I would be more apt to give him a high five if he passed along the gonorrhea to me. Then I would be upset. I'd be like, good for you. Good for you. Uh, well so done. Are you on antibiotics? Yeah. And it, it doesn't hurt as much to pee, but I do still pee 74 times a day. <laughs> but that's nothing new. That's nothing new. And even the doctor was like, do you pee a lot? I'm like, four times an hour, like clockwork. Nothing's really changing. 
All right. Uh, this started down a terrible, terrible path, uh, but it's going to continue uh, to goodness, I think. I think, I think we're going to turn this around. I think we're going to become a lot more educational and a lot more positive, and I love the conversation we're about to have. And we'll talk a lot less shit, let's be honest. <laughs> let's try to act professional, okay? You and me, okay? Wish us luck. <laughs> We are so excited about today's guests, uh, partly because we're hoping to say the word vagina a lot over the next hour. Uh, and the other reason is because she is straight up awesome. She is an OBGYN. She is a health columnist, the host of Splaining, and she also happens to be the author of The Vagina Bible. Please welcome to the Quick and the Dirty podcast, Dr. Jen Gunter. Hey! Hey, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, we are so excited to talk to you because uh, clearly if you have to write a book called The Vagina Bible, we have a lot of learning to do. Yes, no kidding. (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of information to have, a lot of information that hasn't been out there, and uh, I think... uh, People have had a hard time saying the word vagina and vulva in public, and that makes it hard for people to get information. What, but why is it hard to get information? I mean, it's 2019. Yeah, I know, right? Like, it's, it, that freaks me out. Yeah, it it does. But it's, um, you know, I think it's like a constellation of multiple factors. So first of all, there's this whole concept of shame. You know, people can't talk about their vaginas and vulvas the way they can talk about their elbows or their low back pain, right? So if you can't talk about something, the implication is it's shameful. And if it's shameful, you're going to end up going to clandestine places for information, not to medical professionals. Right, because we've all looked at the internet and thought we were dying. Right, exactly. But then (laughs) medicine hasn't done a good job of explaining a lot of these things to women and taking concerns seriously and brushing women off when they have symptoms. Or And so there's that. And then you have just folklore and dogma that's been around since the beginning of time. And, you know, it's so hard to undo myths and mythology. And I, I had this day in the office where I had seen about five women who had all had misconceptions about their bodies, had done things that medically, you know, they probably shouldn't have because of that. And they'd taken advice from, you know, boyfriends or mothers or sisters or doctors or the internet. And when I corrected them, each one of them said, how did I not know that? And so I think this misinformation can come from so many places. I mean, many stores still sell douches. They have warning labels that say that they are harmful to you, like cigarettes are, and yet people still buy them. So if you have these whole, you see this advertising everywhere you go, that your vagina is is dirty because that's sort of the core tenet of the patriarchy that there's something wrong with women's bodies. If you see that advertising everywhere, of course, it would be natural to think that that might stick for some people. It's funny, as a child of the 80s, um, like we were obsessed with douche back, back then because we didn't know any better. So, uh, you know, every girl I knew was douching, and we're talking about teenage girls. You want to talk about ridiculous? That was ridiculous. Uh, but I have never been told different over time. You know, like you're telling me different now that douching is ridiculous, but nowhere along the way has there been some sort of an article or, you know, something that has told me not to douche. You know, I think they do appear in some places, but it's usually like a throwaway line. Right. right. So it's not like that. I mean, but I mean, in the States, they have warning labels just like cigarettes. They do. Wow. And so, you know, and then people say, well, why do they sell them if they're so bad? And I'm like, well, they sell cigarettes, don't they? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, capitalism, right? That's why. Um, and there's a lot of money to be made in making women feel shamed about their body parts. So where do you think that whole vibe of shame and dirtiness originated from for the female body? Oh, I think it's from the beginning of time. I mean, if you go historically and go back centuries and centuries and centuries, I mean, many religions, many cultures have excluded women during menstruation with this belief that that makes them dirty or toxic, which is actually not only medically stupid, but you can use common sense to break that down. If menstrual blood is dirty and toxic, how does an embryo implant in it? Because that's what an embryo grows in, menstrual blood. I mean, you don't get your period, you get pregnant that, you know, so, so it's just been used, you know, since the beginning of time to say that women are unclean, women are dirty. And, you know, you still hear it today. I mean, you hear, you know, people are, that's why we have this whole now instead of 
sort of douching was sort of sort of like the 70s, 80s. And what we have now is this industry in intimate wipes, right? That women need to wipe their vulvas, wipe their rectums, and all these baby wipes are sold to women. Nobody sells baby wipes to men, but they have rectums. Why does no one care about the rectums of men? Why are they not dirty? Uh, because of the patriarchy? <laughs> yeah, I think like, that's uh, easily explained. Like women apparently need to prep themselves for men. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. This is my tagline. Please wash them and bring them to my tent. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sandra, growing yeah. up, when you were a young girl, did you have to hide the fact that you had your period from your dad? Like you would live in a traditional Greek household, three women, one dude. Yeah. How did that all roll out? No, it wasn't that bad. It re- it really wasn't that bad. I never re- it, we it it wasn't ever anything that we spoke about publicly with my father. Um, but no, I I don't particularly remember feeling shame about it with my father. Because, but there was you know that aspect of him. I didn't want him to view me as a woman, right? Because nobody wants that when they're twelve. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- there was more shame about it at school with the boys, right? Who, who so, were always like brutal. The reason I asked is I can remember from the time I got my period, I had to take my own garbage out in my bedroom because really? it was like not to be spoken about. What? Yeah. Like your mother told you not to tell your dad or you pretty decided much. that? So I don't know. Like, is that a pretty normal thing in households? Maybe my household's like pretty weird. You know, it's it's funny that, well, I guess it gets back to the whole central tenant of women being toxic on their periods, right? Like it's everything that you said is, you know, I've had that same experience of being in school and, you know, oh, leaking on your clothes that that's like, you're so embarrassed about that. But if you got a nosebleed, you wouldn't be embarrassed, right? Absolutely not. You know, right. So you got a nosebleed. Your teacher would jump up and say, oh, my gosh. Or the person sitting next to be like, here's a Kleenex. Right. But if you leak blood, it's like oh, taboo, even though it's it's just blood. It's the same thing. Why is one shameful and one isn't? Um, and, you know, many I you know, many, you know, middle school is brutal. Right. To begin with. Oh, my gosh. You know, and so you, anything that that makes you visibly different for that second is that thing that gets weaponized against you. And that's how kids get bullied for all different kinds of reasons. And, you know, this idea that, you know, that 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 young girls who are in a very formative time. Right. Like we know that young girls are very vulnerable to body image disorders sort of in those middle school years and maybe even a little bit younger. I mean, if you if you say to a a young girl that she's overweight or you tell her she's not, you can, you can give her an eating disorder. Like, like with one sentence, you can basically cast a curse of a body image disorder. So you have this sort of time that women are uniquely vulnerable to body image, you know, disorders or issues. And then you have this time of unique bullying and then you have this sort of cultural shame. And so I think it's sort of a perfect firestorm to set many women up for this lifelong, you know, sort of hiding the tampons on the way to the bathroom. And I, you know, my, I think I just carry it out there. Who, who cares? You know, who cares? You know, just hearing you say that, uh, Uh Jen, takes me back to grade five when this girl in my class named Sonia was the first to get her period. And the teacher treated it like 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 the biggest thing in the world that it 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 became like everyone was whispering Sonia got a period Sonia got a period <laughs> and the teacher like panicked she went to like a cupboard and brought a box of i guess they had tampons at the school oh. and 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 marched them into the bathroom you know where poor shamed Sonia was waiting right. who was bleeding all over herself it was as a woman i was so mortified for her that day just mortified but think about so think about if you were a kid who had a stomach ache and you, they were out of toilet paper in the bathroom, no one would make a big deal. They'd just be like, oh, here's a roll of toilet paper, right? You right. And here I am 35 years later telling you, more than 35 years later, telling you the story of Sonia <laughs> being shamed in the bathroom. It was unforgettable. Right. It was so bad. I know, and think about, you know, I think of it. I mean, that happens in classrooms everywhere around the world all the time still today. And it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous that, 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 you know, who Sonia got her period. So then, okay, so what's the implication of that? Do you worry like Sonia's going to start going out having sex now? Like, like this is like the second women start bleeding. They're like, okay, let, let's go have, like having your period doesn't make you a woman, right? It just means that you're now in, you know, a different stage of puberty. 
So we've attached all these sort of things to it that are just, it's just a phase of life. Like I tell people, you know, getting your period is in a way not much different than getting your, getting acne when you go through puberty, right? Like it's just a stage. and Right. It's basically a pain in the ass, just like acne. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is a nuisance. Um, it does. And, you know, for us where, you know, we may have access to products, it's a nuisance. But I mean, there's women, I mean, period poverty is a real issue. There are women who... And girls who can't get the products they need, they don't leave the house, they end up getting skin conditions or irritation because they're reusing rags that aren't cleaned. Uh, they miss school, so they, they don't graduate. I mean, this happens in many countries. So, you know, there are some significant sort of economic, you know, downstream issues. And then there's countries where, you know, girls and women literally have to go to menstrual huts. They're not allowed to walk into the kitchen when they're on their period. I mean, what message does that send? That's horrible. God, that is unbelievable. You know? Uh, uh, Can I, I want to ask you about, like Hillary alluded to shame and vagina shame, but beyond beyond the period thing and the boys teasing us, I have never like loved my vagina either. You know what I mean? And I still, part of it is that maybe I just don't have a great relationship with it and that I don't understand. And I have never understood how, how it works, to be perfectly honest with you. Does that does that make sense? Um, well, I mean, it, it. yes and no. I mean, I think that... Well, no, I, I mean, I'm saying something. I mean, that works. sounds dumb saying. I know how it works. I get how it works. But I don't... Like, I, I, I've never really taken the time to have this relationship with my vagina. Well, but I think that... I know Hillary's <laughs> laughing because she knows it's true. But, okay, I don't but... talk about my vagina. It's there. I deal with it. I move on. Do you have a relationship with your knee? Not really. So I don't think that like, like being sort of this idea of like sort of being in tune with your body parts is very much this sort of, I think like a trend. And, you know, as a doctor, I think it's great to know how, have as much knowledge about every body part as possible, right? That way then when you have a problem, you're, you can use the right language to get medical care. Um, You know, knowing about your knee wouldn't just help you. So we'll use something that's totally like non-sexual as a comparison. So knowing about your knee would be interesting in case you have knee pain or you twist your knee so you can go to the doctor and you can say, well, I need this test or I don't or what's going on. Knowing about your knee would be helpful if you want to become a runner. So then you know how to look after it in more extreme circumstances. So, you know, if you think about that for your vagina, you know, it would be good to have that same working knowledge. Like, you know, what happens each month? What might be the impact of birth control? What might be the impact of sex? um, What might be the impact of STDs? You know, what's kind of the general maintenance that I should think about? Uh, But and then, you know, what do I need to know about having sex? Are there things that I should be doing, I could be doing? And so, you know, I, I tend to think about it, I wouldn't say in a clinical way, but just in kind of like a basic knowledge way. Um, you know, I. but everybody's different. I mean, some people are like, they really like to, you know, uh, I would say you know, worship their body parts and talk about things. And that's great. I mean, it's your jam. That's fine. You know, I mean, I think whatever works for you is what works as long as I would say as long as you're not having a medical problem and as long as you're having the sex that you want to have, that's great. Oh, no, I'm, no, I'm definitely not. <laughs> do you but think that that, that's, that's another do issue. Do you think that whole worshiping thing comes from that need to get over our own shame? Like it's kind of, it, it's to sort of counteract that. Like if I feel shame, then I'm going to pretend that I love it. And then maybe I can find myself somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I think it's an odd mix of weird things because I hear that I hear the language in some of that and sometimes I hear some of the words of the patriarchy like oh it's like wholesome and natural and pure and you know my goddess and those are words that don't sound they on the surface they sound empowering but to me they have a darker undercurrent like that's what the that's what the patriarchy wants, you know, they, the patriarchy wants to put your vagina on a pedestal. The patriarchy wants to do that because then you're going to keep it pure for me. So, so to me that, that Mm. has to me, and I obviously view things through a different lens. Um, but that, that just does have, have some overtones, has a lot of overlap with the wellness industry, which is very predatory and, um, and does have, does use some of the same language of the patriarchy. So, you know, this whole, um, so to me, it has that connotation. But if it doesn't to someone else, that's great. I mean, it's your body and you get to treat it how you want. Um, and if that's what makes you feel good about it, great. Okay. Uh, why do you think that they're able to take something like a vagina? That You know, you make the comparison of a knee and a vagina. They're not commercializing our knees. How come they're able to commercialize our vaginas? 
Well, I mean, they are to some extent. I mean, people are telling you to buy all these powdered collagens to help your knee pain and all this. So there's a lot of that. But there's the added shame about the vagina that you can't talk about it. So if you can't talk about it, your doctor dismisses you, then you end up in these other places. So it's easier to weaponize something that has shame attached to it. That's why I think just, you know, the act, you know, it's the basic act of revolution just to talk about your body parts. It's funny how we talk about female empowerment and what you just talked about, how we've managed to find shame in our vaginas. Uh, Are we going in the right direction? Because I, almost every woman I know, myself included, is totally obsessed with their grooming habits of their vagina and presenting it to be this pretty little flower. Yeah, again, pretty little flower because that's what the patriarchy wants. That the patriarchy doesn't want that's, women. That's you know? right. So, um, you know, again, and you know, personally, I dislike euphemisms for the vagina. I mean, you know, if a guy wants to call your vagina your flower, I mean, that's infantilizing it to me. Right. Again, if that's what works in your relationship and there's no other aspects of sort of infantilizing you and that's that's your guy's specific kink, okay, sure. So I think you're going to have to separate out is that your little kink versus is that an inf, you know infantilizing way right. to talk about your, your grown-up woman parts, right? I was like, um, I'm going to call mine Steve. How does that work okay. for you? Does that- <laughs> so, you know, so I think that um, you just – and the whole grooming thing is why is nobody obsessed about male grooming, right? Well, there is a little bit of that, but not to the same degree as females, not for sure. Not the same degree at all. It's- right. I don't know too many guys who go out and get their uh, their penises waxed all you have to do, or penises lasered. All you have to do is take the cover of any woman's magazine, and I would say every second month there's something about pubic hair. That's not the same in men's magazines at all. Right. Right. And pubic hair serves the same function for both of us. In fact, it's more important probably for women because, you know, the vulvar skin has a higher moisture content and pubic hair traps the moisture. Um, It provides a mechanical barrier. It traps dirt and debris. And it probably has a role in sexual function because, you know, when you each pubic hair is attached to a hair to a nerve ending, that's why it hurts when you get it ripped out. Um, And so tugging on it stimulates nerves and that's part of your sexual response cycle. So, you know, I mean, it's each their own. I mean, you if you get your tongue pierced, there's health consequences, and some people choose to do it, and other people don't. And that's my whole shtick, I would say, or not shtick, but my my belief is informed consent. You know, if you're if you just think, well, I, I mean, I see young women in the office who think having pubic hair is abnormal. Like they think that's like that means like it, that it's gross. It's wrong to have pubic hair. And I'm like, no, that's that's actually the default is pubic hair. If you choose to remove it, if you're grown up, you get to do whatever you want with your body. But these are the this is what pubic hair does. These are the potential consequences. And then you make that decision. I mean, that is informed consent. Isn't it more concerning that there are men out there who think that pubic hair is abnormal? <laughs> well, it is. You know, so I think that's a, personally a form of emotional abuse when when heterosexual men tell their partners how their vulvas and vaginas should look and how they could make it look prettier. Because nobody should be telling you, first of all, anything about your body that could be better. And that would be the only thing I wish I had known when I was 15 and started dating was the first time some guy tells you how you could be better, you should dump him. Uh, Boy, if we could all have a conversation with our 15-year-old selves, right? I mean, that should be it. If they either like you or they don't. And if they don't like what you have, then you you don't change yourself for them. You, you know, you say, okay, well, goodbye. Um, You know, but that's so many women you know, sort of almost like back lead. They keep changing themselves to sort of, you know, suit this man. And um, this just uh, is a very common weight in heterosexual relationships. And I think the other problem that that comes from that, because we don't talk about sex, we don't talk about what good sex is. When you start being sexually active, whether you're 15 or 18 or 20 or 25 or whatever age it is, most heterosexual women learn the mechanics of sex from the least informed person, a heterosexual man. <laughs> Amen. That's right. Wow. You know what? You didn't. Wow. Hold on. I need a minute with That's that. That's just going to take a second. <laughs> that explains yeah, a lot. It really does. <laughs> yeah. I got to ask. Your book has been out for a while now. Um, who's buying your book? Men or women? Um, well, mostly women. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of you know, there. You know, I know. I know. I'm always like dunking on like the patriarchy, and when I'm doing that, I'm not dunking on the allies. There are wonderful. There are wonderful men, and there are wonderful allies. And you know what? They're hurt by the patriarchy too. The patriarchy is sort of, of toxic masculinity that is you know imbued in our society, and that hurts 
you know, that hurts everybody except, you know, a, a small percentage who hold who tend to hold the power. So, um, yeah, so a lot of men buying it for their partners. Uh, it's awesome when I'm at um, book signings. I was at a, um, the Ottawa Writers Festival the other day, and, um, you know, this woman probably like in seventies, late seventies, was there with a book and you know, she and I love when the when the old ladies come up to you. I, I should be careful saying old ladies because it's all perspective. I'm gonna be there pretty soon. Um and uh <laughs> she put her book out and I'm like, Well how you know, I said, Thank you so much for coming and and you know, what would you like me to write in it? And she kind of looked at me with this, you know, kind of like not stern face, but you know, like res- respectable older woman face. And I said, Would you like me to write fuck the patriarchy? And she went and her whole <laughs> face just lit up and she ah! said, Yes, yes I would. <laughs> I love yeah. her. I'm like in love with this woman. I've never met her. Oh, that's so cute. Uh, that happens every book signing. I'll have this older woman there who's generally by herself, um, and she's, you know, just sweet, just, you know, like you would sit beside her on the bus and go, oh, hi, how are you? And, you know, they come up to have the book signed and I always ask them, you know, would you like me to write Fuck the Patriarchy? And they just, their face just lights up. Oh, that's so amazing. Jen, uh, I think it's so interesting that you're calling the book The Vagina Bible because when I think about what I learned about my body, most of it, it didn't come from a medical source. It didn't come from a book. It came from my mother and what she learned from her mother. And it was sort of like myths passed down through time. What do you think is the most inaccurate or even dangerous thing that we've learned from our mothers through time, like a common misconception? Well, I mean, it probably depends on your mother, um, but, you know, mine said tampons are evil and dangerous and will kill you, so that's a myth. <laughs> um, uh, mine, said that, oh, mine said that sex was bad and evil and will kill you. So, <laughs> that's so, not what mine said. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I, I think that... Um, probably the biggest problem is just the inability to talk about it accurately. You know, there are obviously there's some girls who came from very open households and everybody talked about everything. But, you know, I think that it's, it's easy to sort of judge our mothers and, you know, probably easier for me to judge mine than anyone else. But, um, but I think that you also have to look at the context in which they were raised, right? Oh, so, yeah. I just mean that was like the tradition was you learn about your body from your mother who learned about it from their mother. And I kind of feel like it's like the telephone de- game where by yes. the end it's like that's not where we started. <laughs> but you have to remember, too, everybody starting with information about the vagina vulva was inaccurate. Because we didn't have science back then. We didn't, you know, thousands of years ago when people were trying to educate their daughters about menstruation, they didn't know what it was. They, you know, they didn't know how it, they they knew nothing about it. So, you know, so I think that, you know, and, you know, when did women, you know, get the right to go to school? When were women starting to graduate from college? I mean, in the history of, of, of humanity, you know, that's relatively recent, right? I mean, women were property. So what you told, so, so mothers were terrified their daughters wouldn't be marriage prospects. So that has influenced probably up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years, how young, what young girls have been taught. It's still probably there. I mean, if it's been since the beginning of time, how do you erase that in just a generation? You can't. I mean, you know, women were afraid. Like you, you I mean, my mother had to get married. Like you, women didn't have jobs. Right. Like you, you, you maybe had a job, you had a job until you got married and then you stopped working. If you kept working as a woman, it was because you were a spinster. I mean, you know, it's funny that we're having this conversation about the patriarchy and we're talking about our mothers. And I, I got I was not even aware that I was so indoctrinated by the patriarchy until very late in life. Like I'm in my 40s now and it was my 40s that I I became woke, as they say. I never thought about it. It was just my life. And uh, it's embarrassing to even say that. But true. But looking back, growing up. Jen, uh, we didn't talk about sex in my house, and there was an understanding that my job was to get an education, marry a nice boy, and that was going to be the way it goes, because I grew up in a traditional European mm-hmm. household. 
And it's amazing how many young women, and specifically those of uh, with European parents, I, I can't speak to Canadian parents, but had that same experience that we knew, like we were, I got a book about sex when I was 14. That was it. And my, I asked my mom some questions that got answered, but we didn't sit around, you know, mulling it over. <laughs> and and that was it. I was not, I was not to, I, I was to get married young to a nice boy. That was the expectation. Yeah. I mean, I, in my household, that wasn't my household, my household was men were horrible and evil and you need to have a job. So you never have to depend on a man. Well, my mother tried to instill that in me as well. And it, it, it worked out pretty well for me in the end, but <laughs> And that's because I moved out when I was 22. Had I stayed, I don't know how it would have ended. Yeah. But it's just one of those things. I was the black sheep because I didn't I didn't stay. I, I left before I got married. <gasps> the humanity. Right. I know. But, but it, so just think about it. Just like it's just even just so in our recent history, if you think about think about, you know, humanity and how long we've been here, like it's only been in the last, um, you know, uh, 10, 15 years that, that, that we've been saying to women, you, you can do what you want. Like you, you know, your worth isn't dependent on getting married and, you know, not everybody wants to partner with men. Like let's have those conversations too, because, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I see all these women who have body image issues about their vulvas and vaginas because of things men have told them. I don't ever see women who partner with women who have those issues. Right. And, you know, you think about why are, you know, that women who are partnering with women have more orgasms in their sexual relationship than women who partner with men. I mean, because they're partnering with someone who knows the parts. (laughs) They know what they're doing. It makes a big difference. So I just think it's... Right. And they respect the part too. Yeah. So I think it's super important to sort of, you know, this whole traditional idea about, you know, traditional marriage, quote, quote, whatever that means, has or what it's meant historically, has certainly not been beneficial to women. And it's forced women to, you know, I mean, imagine you get that message and you're a young, you know, you're a young, um, a young gay girl. And, you know, the only message you get from your mother is you need to go marry a boy. Like, how does that help you be open about your body or learn things? I mean, you know, you're, you're sort of, getting such bad messages from the beginning. So I think it's just, I, that's why I think just facts and education are the way to go and just present it. Well, so here's information and you just make those choices that work for you. Do you think that the um, sort of commercial and capitalist environment is now, because we're talking about our vaginas and our bodies, more finding a new way to make money from us? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> The more you can talk about vaginas, the more people are going to find a way to sell you products for it, you know, and it's the products are so scammy. It's ridiculous. And they all but they all play on this fear of lack of information. I mean, the the one great thing that's I mean, you know, if people read my book, then they'll realize they don't need any of those products. And I actually heard a really great story from because um, my book is in Shoppers Drug Mart. And this man showed up and um, he was talking to a male pharmacist and he said he he needed a product for his wife to balance her pH. You know, ooh. the male pharmacist <laughs> looked at him and said, you don't need that. What you need is this book. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Can That's I get incredible. a prescription, Dr. Jen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. Like, and, and he said, we don't sell those products here. They're harmful. You need to read this book so that you can understand, you know, if there's a medical problem or if there isn't. What do you think is the biggest <laughs> scam product being sold and popular right now? Oh, right now, I would say um, all the, the CBD products and TA, the cannabis products for the vagina. Damn it. <laughs> Are you talking about the loop? Why? Uh. Okay. So let me rephrase it to you. What if the pharmaceutical industry came out with products with cannabis for the vagina and a lube, and uh, they had it all approved without any studies and made all these claims? Would you say, hey, man, the pharmaceutical industry is trying to put one over on me, wouldn't you? Right. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Big Wellness. These products are completely unstudied. We know that actually women who use cannabis are more likely to be colonized with yeast. The very little we know about cannabis and sexual function is when women are sexually stimulated, their natural levels of endocannabinoids actually go down. They don't go up. 
So, you know, people who report that they have better sexual experiences while they're using cannabis, it could just be because they think they are, or maybe because they have less anxiety, not because they're actually getting a pharmaceutical benefit from cannabis. The lubes are completely unstudied in the vagina. We don't know how they could damage the vaginal ecosystem. This idea that cannabis has a net positive effect on every cell in the body is absolutely ridiculous because no compound can do that. And what's the effect of chronically stimulating those endocannabinoid receptors? We don't even know if there's endocannabinoid receptors in the vagina. So the, the, the bulk of the, the, the information that we know about cannabis is it increases your colonization of yeast. It decreases sugar storage in your vaginal cells, which is important for keeping your healthy bacteria. And uh, natural levels of endocannabinoids go down when you're sexually stimulated. So use it at your own risk. What if you are a woman of a certain age and you need a little helper? What do you do? If you want lube, then you go to the drugstore and get some silicone-based lube. That's the best for um, people who are postmenopausal. But some people like water-based lubes. I personally can't stand the feel of them. But, um, but yeah, just get a good silicone-based lube. Good, because I just want to feel again. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, vaginal estrogen will make a huge difference for um, for women who are getting close to, uh, you know, perimenopause or menopause. That will make a huge difference as well. That will make your cells pretty much like they were when you were 30. Oh, my God. <laughs> make an appointment, <laughs> Sandra. Stash. <laughs> I wrote it down. I circled and I put a star next to it. Vaginal estrogen. Oh. I'm in. So, you know, <laughs> um, so there are a lot of good things to do. So, um you know, it just depends on, uh, you know, what, what the actual problem is, right? You know, and, and for low libido, one of the best treatments is um, medical mindfulness, meaning erotica. <laughs> so thinking about, you know, imagining fantasies, thinking about, you know, thinking about um, sexual scenarios. I mean, that's what I do all the time. That's why I'm always thinking about, you know, sex with my person because I'm always thinking about sex with my person. You know, and once you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, imagine, I imagine all kinds of scenarios and things, and that's what gets your libido up. There's a wonderful book by um, Dr. Lori Brado, who is a Canadian sex researcher, PhD sex researcher from the University of British Columbia, and it's called Better Sex Through Mind. Who knew? <laughs> it seems like such like the obvious right. answer. Erotica. It's. I mean, obviously. Can I ask you something about vaginal steaming? Because we were talking about the biggest myths out there. I read a story the other day on my radio show about vaginal steaming, and I thought, the hell is that? Right. Is, is it as dumb as I think it is? It's, um, it's a total scam. It's an absolute, absolute scam. I mean, you know, first of all, if you're squatting over a pot of steaming herbs, which are actually mostly allergens, (laughs) you know, the steam's not going to get in your vagina. But if it did, that would be bad because your vagina is a low oxygen environment. So it does not want to have, um, you know, doesn't want to have oxygen in it. And the thing that people forget is vaginal steaming exists because historically people thought the uterus was full of toxins. And it was to clean the uterus. So any wellness person who is promoting vaginal steaming is literally promoting the patriarchy. Thanks, literally. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Screw yeah. you. <laughs> They've just wrapped it up with a, um, with a pink bow and uh, tried, right. to call it, um, uh, tried to call it uh, um, feminism, but it's the exact opposite. So we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again in terms of supporting the patriarchy. We're just finding new and interesting ways to do it, uh, you know, i.e. vaginal steaming, cannabis lube. Yeah, well, anything that's untested. Uh, you ask yourself, what are the ethics of promoting untested products? That's what people are doing. It's capitalism. It's not. It's not wellness. It's capitalism. So it just it kills me how all these cannabis products get a total pass. You have no idea if it's safe or not. People thought tobacco was super safe for years. And I mean, I'm not saying like you know that that recreational cannabis is is harmful in the way that you know whatever recreational cocaine is. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But when you're using it every day for your health. You know, we don't know what the long-term impacts are on different body parts because applying it to your vagina or applying it somewhere, I mean, we don't know what we don't know. For example, we know that certain lubes that have um, what are called high osmolality, which means a low water content, are extremely damaging to the lining of the vagina. I don't know what the osmolality of any cannabis lubes are. They They don't write that down. Interesting, interesting stuff. 
Wow. So, you know, so there's all these, all these ways that, you know, people, you know, or, you know, CBD bath soaks. Well, we don't know what the impact is of having, you know, CBD all over your skin and what we don't know. We don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. People thought the sun was great until they realized that, you know, being in the sun caused cancer. I mean, we, you know, when things are unstudied, we don't know what we don't know. And I always say that, you know, health health trends cannot be healthy because it takes years and years and years to get data to study to know the impact of things. So I would say that what's your bother factor that you want to treat and be very careful about, you know, how how do you know this product is going to treat that problem? Where are there studies? And in, when it's wellness, there's no studies because you know what? If there's studies and things work, it becomes medicine. True enough. And, and, and we find out too late, too little too late. Uh, what the truth is, like you say, years later about sun damage and so and we on. We still can't get people to stop taking supplements, right? Supplements. For the, I mean, yep. people continue to take multivitamins and all these supplements. And I'm not talking about people who've had bariatric surgery who may who may need supplements. And I'm not talking about women trying to get pregnant who need folic acid. But you know, people just keep taking their supplements, and it's so funny to me that that is sort of promoted as natural when the most natural thing is to get your vitamins from your food. Fair enough. You know. Fair enough. I want to go back to the book. You wrote okay. this book. Uh, it is the Vagina Bible. You clearly know a lot about the medical side, but you also talk a lot about sort of the physical and relationship side of of sex. How does that translate into your own relationships? Before we started the podcast, you mentioned that you're in a new relationship. We won't get into any of the details, but have you ever found it's intimidating for a new partner because you have all this knowledge? <laughs> Well, um, you know, it's funny. So, uh, you know, I was dating for quite some time and uh, many men um, assumed that me writing about sex meant that, of course, I wanted to sex with them. <laughs> I was like, no. Oh, wow. That's not what the book is about, yeah, honey. And uh, that because I write about sex clearly, you know, you know, I, I just love to get uh, you know, a, a text oh. about how some dude is so hard for me. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> really? I feel really? like we've all had that thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, and then you meet someone who's different and is not like that uh, and is respectful. And uh, yeah. Um, so it's, I, I mean, I imagine, you know, perhaps um, it, it might be a little bit intimidating at first because, you know, if I was going running with someone who was, um, you know, a sports medicine doctor who, you know, was also a marathon runner and knew everything about like running pace and yeah. gait and everything. Your form I'm, is a little. Mm. Right. I would, I would be a little intimidated, except if that person made me feel at ease and it wasn't a big deal. And then after two or three seconds, I would be totally fine. So um, I'm, I, I, I think that's, that's what happened. <laughs> right. If you find the right person, it's right. a non-issue yeah. or, or it should be. Anyway. Just it's because... a non-issue, although, although, um, yeah, it was a non-issue, although, um, you know, yeah, I, I would just say that. <laughs> I would be concerned that I would constantly be critiquing the other person because I know better. Right. Like, eh, how you know, do I, I say this that... in a nice way? So, so this is what I tell everybody. Good sex. So, Sex is communication. It's just communication with your body physically. And if you can, people have a harder time talking about sex than they do having sex, which is what leads to a lot of sexual problems. If you can't tell, imagine if you never told anyone what you wanted for dinner and the only way you communicated with them was how you were eating the meal. Like that would suck, right? Because you might just want to know, like if, if you love to make vegetarian food and your partner hates vegetarian food and all you do is serve them vegetarian food and you never talk about what you're going to have for dinner and how you're going to make it, then your partner might get resentful or they might not enjoy their meals and then you would have dinner time problem, right? So think about that with sex. So I think that because I'm open and I'm able to talk about it, then it makes the other person feel that they can too. And um, I would never want to judge somebody that I'm sexually active with because that's cruel and I don't want to be like that because I wouldn't want them to treat me that way. So I use that dinner analogy all the time and I just, um, you know, kind of take that lead. And, uh, you know, I think that um, you, you want to show your partner that you want to communicate, you want to communicate with your body. And if you're being touched in a certain way, that's nice. You want to let them know. Um, But it's also nice to kind of let them know in advance things that you like or don't like and go from there. 
So what's next for you? Is there going to be a sequel to the Vagina Bible? Because I want more uh, of this. Well, yes. I love this conversation, and I, I, I want it to keep going for generations to come. But, uh, like, the only way we can do it, obviously, is for you to keep writing more books. <laughs> well, so I do. Do you I mind? I book coming out in, uh, I guess, about 18 months um, called Menopause Manifesto. Oh, oh, that one sounds perfect for me, actually. <laughs> that sounds perfect for me because I'm a I'm in perimenopause right now. And it, it might be the most confusing time of my life because I wish there was sort of like a one stop shop to understand what the hell is going on with me. Well, I think so. The biggest piece of advice that I would give people is menopause is puberty in reverse. Oh, God, that sounds awful. <laughs> do you get the acne, too? <laughs> right, like, you do. You get the acne. Oh, um, God, that's, so that's awful. That's you get on Retin-A, if you can tolerate it, because Retin-A not only is the most evidence-based way to prevent wrinkles, but it treats acne. Okay, that's so, excellent advice. I like I like both of those things you just said. Estrogen and Retin-A on your list. Yeah, I mean, that's, those yes. are the only, you know, that's what I use. So, um, but I think, you know, the other important thing about, so, so just like when you go through puberty, right? Like there's mood swings, there's your body is changing in a way and it's like, woo, what's going on? That's kind of the same thing. But we don't medicalize puberty, right? We don't, we say, okay, we have acne, let's treat it. If you have this, let's treat it. But we also accept that you have growing pains. We accept that you have these things. And so I think that it's super important to remember for perimenopause that things that are problematic. So for example, if you're having super heavy periods and soaking your clothes, that needs to be treated. But you know, some things are also the equivalent of growing pains and there aren't treatments for those. You just have to accept that that's a change in life, just like puberty was a change. And so I'm hoping that my book will also help people sort those things out so they can figure out, you know, what's something that that can be treated, what's something that needs to be treated, and what's something that kind of has to be tolerated until it goes away because, you know, that's it's a phase of life and that's what happens. Yeah, we call that the five years my mother went crazy. <laughs> she was like, but nobody talked about it. So I think it's important that we're talking about it because, like, literally, we just wrote it, wrote it off, and that's not fair. It's such a yeah. That well, like you say, that's we all do that. When when you say the word menopause, people go oh, they can make a face like oh, you're gonna go crazy now. What's happening to you? Uh, I I I don't know what's happening to me right now. I don't feel like I'm going crazy. I just feel like I don't know what's going well, I on. I think that so. Society is invested in women having this crazy archetype, right? Like that's that's the tradition. That's what people want you to think about menopause. I didn't have one yep. crazy thought going through menopause. Nothing, right? Because I knew all the changes that were happening to my body, and I was like, okay, this is this, this is this. So I think that you just have to sort of, you know, it is true that changes in hormone levels for some women can trigger depression, can trigger anxiety. That doesn't mean that menopause is making their, 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 you know, making them quote, quote, crazy. That means that maybe it's triggering another underlying condition and that should be looked at. But I think that, you know, um, this idea that, that women are going to become, you know, these enraged beasts going through menopause is who does that serve? So I always think whenever I hear something that sounds like dogma, who does that serve? Does that myth serve women or does that myth serve men? Because it doesn't serve women. It serves neither, actually. No, no, it serves men to to dismiss. It serves the patriarchy to dismiss women. Right. It's it's funny because it's almost like a a joke in my my place of work, or it used to be a joke. I used to work work with a gentleman who would who would always like to shame me because I had told him that I'm like you know getting like hot and whatever. But that was his like, and it was just like a running joke. Sandra's hot today. Sandra's in a mood today, and it was like uh, that's what he loved to do. He loved to shame me because I was going through perimenopause. What an asshole! You're in a mood because he's a fucking asshole, not because. Well, definitely now that I hear that, and and I remember feeling bad about it and thinking, and there's also the ageist part of it too that's another thing entirely that it's it's never easy for anybody man or woman getting old but menopause is associated with being a woman of a certain age and being mature like you're really not you're halfway through your life that's not old you know there's many studies that tell us that societies that have grandmothers so women you know women who have you know we we keep Women live for a very long time after they finish reproducing, which is unique among mammals. Most mammals reproduce and then they're done. And so the fact that we live for long times in 
after we've finished reproducing is a sign that that benefits society. And if you think about it, and I'm going to really talk about this in the book, if you think about it, myth famine and all these things that happen to to you know where you, to to different cultures around the world different you know, groups of people you know these things happen not like every 5 or 6 years often these sort of environmental catastrophes happen every 20 every 30 years so think about it a, a culture is more likely to survive if they have people that have that historical memory. So if you have the 60-year-old who says, oh, I remember when I was 20 and we had this happen and my mom went and picked, we found out that we could actually eat those plants. Or, you know, so if you think about having this, having people who live a long time not only helps with child rearing, helps with, you know, they can look after the children while the stronger people are out foraging or hunting or, you know, getting food, but also they have this historical historical memory of, of what people have done in times of, you know, famine or times of flood or times of, you know, when they were invaded by, you know, whoever. So, so I think that this idea that um, this collective cultural memory that, that what I would call grandmothers, but there are also many women who never got pregnant and never reproduced, who also lived long lives, that these, these collective older women contributed to society in a lot of ways. Because those societies are more successful than societies that didn't have them. I can already tell you that I can't wait for that next book to come out. I can't wait so, to to read it and move forward with the conversation. Um, I know that we only had you for a certain amount of time, uh, Jen. So I want to thank you for coming on our podcast today. I loved talking to so you. So fun, Jen. Thank you so much. The author of The Vagina Bible. Uh, Jen, where can people get it? People can get the Vagina Bible at every bookstore. They can buy it at Indigo Chapters. They can get it at independent bookstores. They can buy it from Amazon. They can get it at Shoppers Drug Mart. They can get it at Costco. And they can um, <laughs> find links through drjengunter.com. And they can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter, on Instagram at Dr. Jen Gunter, and on Facebook at Dr. Jen Gunter. We get it. You're Jen Gunter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This episode is over, but the conversation doesn't have to be. Follow Hillary and Sandra on social. Instagram at Hillary on Air at Sandra Kiss 1053. Twitter at Hillary Welch at Sandra Kiss 1053. And on Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. Got a question? Email Hillary and Sandra, the quick and the dirty at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can download the podcast each week to your mobile device to listen offline. Find the quick and the dirty on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts.